Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to the traditional second meeting of the Avi Friedman Fan Club. <laughs> and you can hear him in the background. We have a special guest. We have Avi Friedman himself on his fan club meeting. Anyway, on a more serious note, when Avi approached me uh, months ago, and the first result of that was our streaming telemetry podcast, he also said, well, we should do a podcast on how to bring young blood into networking because we are turning into grumpy old people. I don't want to say buried men. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, we should do a podcast on that topic. How do we motivate younger people to join the circle of old people that deal with networking? Without further ado... Avi, you will introduce all the other guests. It is your show. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Yvonne. It seems like the network community is getting older. And also, like, we're behind some of the other technical groups that I see in our customers in terms of diversity overall, compared to, say, software engineering or other parts of tech. And so I thought it'd be great to have a conversation about what we're seeing, what some of our experiences are, and um, how we as a community maybe can work and help. But before we get to that, maybe some introductions, if people could share a little bit about what you do now and um, maybe something you're excited to learn about in 2021 in this exciting new year. Elisa, would you like to start? Sure. Hi, I'm Elisa. I freelance in the network reliability space, I guess we call it these days. Anything between networking and and software development, uh, most recently at Packet Fabric. And she is a lifelong member of Avi Friedman Fan Club. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, it's mutual, so... We bonded over flow data. <laughs> yes, it's always fun to meet flow nerds. And uh, Rupa? Hi, I'm Rupa. I'm, at, uh, I'm doing networking at NVIDIA, previously Cumulus Linux. I am mostly uh, doing Linux networking stuff. Linux networking community recently uh, also joined the OCP community, and I'm a big advocate about of open source. And I think open source networking is critical to, you know, getting democratizing networking or networking infrastructure. Well, that sounds like a fun topic for a future podcast. I'll let you and Yvonne uh, negotiate about that. I would love to learn some more about that. Oh, we are talking about that all the time. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Well, I'm paying attention to it more now that they actually have flow generation from some of the... I mean, Cumulus has had it, but since the Sonic now sends more telemetry, it's getting more operable you know, by a lot of our folks. I think people know Yvonne. My background is I'm Avi Friedman. I taught people some things about networking in the 90s, so people like Yvonne think that I'm smarter than I am because they read something that I wrote about BGP a long time ago. I've run a company called Kentic, which is a company that helps people deal with all their network telemetry and work with operations. And I started an ISP back in the days before Linux existed. Um, and I remember this cute little Linux thing coming out and when will its TCP stack be good enough to use? And now it dominates the world. So I thought that we could start maybe talking about when we were the Utes, when we were getting into 
networking. And, and maybe that'll help people understand that it doesn't have to be the grand wizards that you join that run the internet, um, that there's you know many paths in. And so I guess my first question is, how did you get interested in networking? And um, what was it that got you a break? And Yvonne, I think we're all wondering about your background. So why don't you start? I think I told that story a number of times. Anyway, early 1980s, there was this PDP-1170 with 2 meg of RAM and the blinking lights in the front. And there was this VAX-11780 with probably 4 meg of RAM and 30 users on it. Mm -hmm. And you could play games on that VAX. And of course, the terminals connected to VAX because in those days we had actual terminals. You know, the thing is that you emulate now with iTerm or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those were the physical devices, as Avi well knows. So obviously those terminals were always busy. And then one day someone calls me. I was like maybe 16, 17 in those days. Like, I have to show you something. This is wonderful. Like, what is it? Oh, this computer can talk to that computer. It's like, duh. So what? Oh, you know what? You could remote log in from this computer to that computer. Well, that was something. Imagine I could grab the terminal from the other machine and log into VAX and play the games. Yep. So that got me hooked immediately. And then probably a year or so later, someone got this crazy idea that if you take RS-232, Avi, you probably know what that is, and everyone is going to like, was that weird acronym? That's that robot on Star Trek, on Star Wars, rather, right? Exactly. That was R2-D2, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, it was the serial interface before the serial interface. Mm -hmm. DB9, DB25. DB25, it was all DB25. DB9 came later, years later. And if you take the receive and transmit pins, and you connect them with a diode, you get a bus. And you just wire together a number of PCs. In those days, it was 8-bit uh, CPU, Z80s, and 64K of RAM. K, not mags, not gigs. <laughs> this one only had, I think, like 16K of RAM or something. Yeah, I showed a ZX80. Avi, by the way, thanks. We should really publish the video of this because... Every time I'm talking about Ansible, I'm saying it's ZX80 of network automation. Exactly. We'll get a picture of that. Anyway, I managed to write an extension to the CPM operating system that enabled me to share files between those computers over RS-232 hacked together with diodes and making a bus out of that. And someone even productized that later using RS-485, I think which is the proper technology to build the bus. And it went to, you know, the ludicrous speed of 115 kilobits. And then a few years later, I was asked to do the same thing again. And this time we were using uh, coaxial cable. So it was almost like Ethernet. And we wrote our own server operating system and the networking stack. And then uh, eventually I figured out that there's this thing called TCP IP. And I couldn't grasp how stupid they were because nodes didn't have addresses. Imagine interfaces had addresses. How stupid is that? Yeah. So it sounds like you threw yourself into it uh, at a time when there was a ton of opportunity. And confusion. And confusion too, yes. Rupa, how did you get interested and what was? how did you break in? How did you get into it? 
Yeah, so I started my career as a Linux systems programmer, right? So I entered any project that did Linux. And obviously, once you get into that, you're always hired in those positions. So I guess even today, I actually consider myself as a systems engineer more than, you know, specific networking engineer. So I started my career when clusters, commodity clusters were a thing. And more specifically, single system image clusters. I don't know if anybody has heard about it. High performance computing when it was, yes. we, we had cloud, but it was only one app running on yes. the whole cloud, right? Yes. And for me at that time, networking was just part of that distributed system, right? So that has stayed along with me. Actually, today, even today, when I think of networking, it is part of a huge distributed system. Today, I do EVPN, but still, it is the same thing for me, connecting my routes to clusters, right? So yeah, that was fun. Basically, I was doing more than just networking, basically uh, processes and then process migration to another node. You had network in between and so on. Real networking was when I joined Cisco and UCS and when I was working on an Ethernet driver. That was, again, by chance, <laughs> right? But yep. <laughs> yeah, it was basically dived into fixing bugs. But I think my love of networking enhanced or now I see more of networking or dive deeper into it was when I started engaging with the Linux community or not even engaging, just looking at the Linux community and the vibrant community around it and learning a lot. So yeah, that's my beginning of networking. Now we are in NVIDIA and you know, it's <laughs> still distributed systems, connected GPUs. Networking is a yeah core too. I know NVIDIA has been uh, sucking a black hole of clue people coming in with their grand aspirations. And it's Brilliant to see Ethernet coming back into some of the HPC world because my head was scratching when I was trying to understand, you know, subnet management and InfiniBand. And I'm like, oh, my God, I thought ARP was bad, <laughs> you know, trying to figure this out. Elisa, what was your entree into network? So interesting because it sounds like all of you guys kind of got there as a byproduct of something. I think it, my way was a little bit different because I actually consciously chose to dive into networking at some point when I was at university, I guess, so some 20 years ago by now. <laughs> that sounds long. You know, and they were throwing programming subjects at you and networking subjects as well. But it always seemed like, why are you talking to me about HTTP when I need to figure <laughs> out how it actually happens? Like, how does it actually get there? I don't know. I always had this longing to understand what happens underneath and every like layer you uncover in the IT world, it all just leads to networking in the end. <laughs> so every time you got a toy as a kid, you had to take it apart? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. That explains it. You're a good engineer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what engineers should do. And then it was a little bit, you know, a mix of chance of meeting the right people at the right time. And I got into an internship at Amzix. So kind of that did it. Cool. I think that was probably uh, contemporaneously when we met back then. And I remember going to Amzix and I think it was one of, it was one of the, the buildings at uh, University Park. And I'm like not used to selling, smelling smoke in the data center, but they were smoking right outside, you know, the entrance to the data center. And I'm like, wow, this is unusual. I guess they roll differently in different countries. Europe is not like that anymore these days. <laughs> I was very fortunate and privileged. My uncle got me into computers when I was eight. And my father was doing medical research, and he had a guy who had worked at Bell Labs and got me into Unix and stuff. 
But then my uncle showed me this thing called the ARPANET on like TOPS PDP machines and let me play around for 15 minutes on the modem. And then he immediately changed his password and said I was never to use the ARPANET again after he looked at all the systems that I found. <laughs> you know, without word dialing, but, you know, the net equivalent of it. And then I had always wanted to run multi-line BBSs, but never did, but used BBSs. And when I got to Temple University the first day, I saw these two professors and I said, what do you guys do? And one said, oh, I teach image processing. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting, AI and image processing. The other said, oh, I do networking. I was like, yes, yes, that's, I'm sure that's nice to connect all the computers. And then I was interested in distributed processing and I just, that I discovered, you know, as Rupa did, you know, to make distributed processing work, the network is underneath. And Lisa, you know, has found out it's uh, really fascinating what happens underneath. And that really got me in. And there was an empty T1 and I hated uh, VAX on VMS and brought Sun workstations in and had fun. So that was what I got into it. I think we all had a really interesting entree back at a time when, you know, the networking world was smaller. And also... I think we all sort of also talked about the fact that um, it's not like we went to school for networking back, you know, 20 plus years ago, there was nerd and the nerd did sysadmin and sometimes programming and architecture. And there was some network stuff and oh, security, which is a whole separate thing right now. And it was just, you know, we get some nerds and they're sysadmins and they do some stuff. And now things seem to be very specialized. And I hope one of the points of this is that these things are, you know, very related, especially now as we come back to infrastructure in code as and software. And since we're talking about bringing people earlier in career in, I wanted to ask another question. What was really helpful when you were entering the field to you early in your career? And were there any things that were frustrating that maybe, you know, the orgs and the people you're working around could have done better? And I'll start with Lisa first. Let's see. What was frustrating? We will stumble over the subject at some point in this conversation, probably anyways. But I mean, there is something to like, you know, being a woman in this field. I don't know. I never really took it personally because I guess I'm, you know, I'm just kind of brushing it off. But there was comments every once in a while of people just going like, oh, a girl, like, okay, like, what do you do here? Kind of thing. But I don't know. I'm, I always kind of faced it very, like... I don't care. The only thing I really have to do is like do my technical stuff. And if the technical stuff all works out in the end, no one should really care about, you know, what gender or what race or what color or whatever a person is in the first place. So, and that somehow worked out for me pretty well, but I think it's a little bit of like a personality thing. Some people can brush it off easily. Some can't. So there's definitely something to be said about, you know, having to face those situations and having to kind of deal with that throughout your career. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll try to be politically correct, okay? Otherwise, we'll just cut this out. <laughs> it is true that there are very few women who go into networking. And I would say the ratio is over 10 to 1. Whereas in uh, generic IT, software engineering, it's... 25 to 30% of women, that's what I see at the local university. It was 50-50 when I started because there were no entrance exams for software engineering, but there were entrance exams for medicine. So take your guess. And some of those ladies did a wonderful job later on. And at least one of them I know is now running her own company. I don't know what they do in IT, but 
Some of those people who wanted to study medicine were later very successful in uh, IT. When I was teaching the last time, it was probably around 30%. In networking, it's below 10 One explanation I got for that is that in non-ops IT, so if you are a programmer, and this was before DevOps, you could just, you know, end your job at 4 p.m. and go home in Europe, not in U.S. U.S. is different. Whereas in networking, you're never off the hook because it's always the network's fault. Whatever happens, the shit first flows into your direction and then you have to deflect that and prove it's not the network. And then they will take a look at the database performance, for example. Do you know how the numbers look like in more system administration type of things? Because I would put that into a similar field. I think it's more like help desk, IT help desk and up and ITIL and management is maybe not 50-50, but, you know, well above 30%, I think, you know, is female and also more, you know, more racially diverse. And then networking is seems like the worst, but I think that systems is uh, 25, 30 plus percent, maybe even a little bit more. I don't know, Rupa, if you have any sense from looking at a big company like NVIDIA, you know, or Cisco. Yeah. Yeah, ballpark 30% seems to be the right number. Even in open source communities and systems, Linux, I think there are very few women engineers, even at conferences, right? Even the open source and Linux communities are doing more to actually increase that percentage. Yeah, and networking in general has been a bit intimidating, I guess. Do you think that's it? Do you think it's intimidating? I just want to pull out that word. Yeah, it probably is. I mean, when I look back and see, I was hesitant to dig deeper into networking, right? But today, I think even when you're working in an organization and you're put in a project, you're likely not going to uh, drift towards networking. Probably application, other systems that are local to your node, which you're very comfortable with. But for uh, networking, I think what has helped me is ease networking, I think, is looking at code, open source code. Even VXLAN today, I mean, looking at the RFCs, it's like, I don't think I would have gone looking for an RFC. Uh, you know, I would have loved reading that RFC, but looking forward. <laughs> uh, Rupa, you haven't read X25 standards. <laughs> <laughs> RFCs are poetry, not prose compared to those. <laughs> when ITU was awful, IEEE is awful. <laughs> ITF is decent. But, yeah. you know, so yeah, I'll come back to you again, Rupa, because you were... You know, between if you said intimidating or obscure and obtuse, how would you rank? You know, was it that it was not well documented and or were there other factors? Yeah, it just feels like you need to do that extra effort to teach yourself lots of like RFCs going back to RFCs, right? It feels mm-hmm. like unless you've acquired that knowledge or done that extra effort to actually go and learn all these things, it just feels there is a little bit of hesitation, at least for me, to get into a conversation with, you know, networking uh, people who have spent like 20 years in networking, right? As a systems engineer, that always been a this thing. But of course, you know, putting that extra effort and catching up with that, but that requires extra time. That's what I felt, you know? And for me, I think it's always been because I've been a systems person getting into networking, especially at Cumulus, right? I was working with people from Cisco's and who have built networking ASICs, who have done forwarding for so long. So I think it did take me a little bit of time to get comfortable. I think that's true of any technology, but in general, it seems like 
yeah, networking has a big, huge backlog to catch up. Yeah, Rupa, I think that we all have a skewed perspective of what networking is and how intimidating it is because we are too deep inside. Yeah. Because, you know, honestly, if you say database, most people would say, well, SQL. SQL is complexity-wise below configuring VLANs. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, you know, People can talk about SQL and compare notes and it is graspable and people can relate to that. What we, the four of us are doing is, you know, like writing your own database engine and optimizing how indices are built Mm -hmm. or whether you would use this three data structure or the other three data structure or maybe hash indices and how would you optimize that? Or, you know... Everyone can relate to Python these days, or maybe it's Go or Rust or what have you. But try talking to someone who actually wrote the Python interpreter or the Go compiler. That's intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's a cultural thing which has been, again, I've been very privileged because I got in very early and I'm comfortable, you know, going toe to toe for something I'm passionate about. But I've seen people on the spectrum who get so focused and passionate and it can be really hard I've seen for young folks to, you know, get in and they're actually really nice people if you catch them at the right time. But, you know, if you get into a, I call it geek binary itis. It's like there is a correct way and everything else is wrong. Whereas, you know, when you get older, maybe you learn like if they're happily using, you know, Perl, maybe they don't have to use Python, right? I mean, you know, not everything needs to be rewritten for the one true way. And and that, that I think can be part of it too. And a lot, there are people in networking who, or geekdom in general, who don't read people well and, you know, aren't as welcoming. And so then that's a question of how do we help those people if they're in our management chain, you know, learn and grow and, you know, help people become more welcoming. Maybe on the other side, I guess, what are the patterns of people that have helped us as mentors or, you know, get in because there is a lot of info and it can be a little bit obscure. You know, Yvonne, did you have any people that really remember from the early days that helped you? And how can we be like those people, I guess, is sort of that question for us all. Well, I think about that. I don't think I ever had a mentor. I did interact with two people that I figured out maybe 20 years later how they helped me. One of them gave me the opportunity to work on stuff I loved. Mm Mm-hmm which was like the best thing you could give to an 18-year-old kid. Just work on this and something will come out of that. And yeah, we'll pay you a little bit. And it was peanuts. The results were spectacular. And the other one was, you know, like I am these days slightly older, slightly cynical. And whenever I was becoming too geeky, he set me straight with a quote or two. (laughs) (laughs) So how to work with people that are less normal to the plane of normality. So, Well, you know, the one I remembered most was when I was yet again having one of those, you know, youthful insights into how things should be done. And he said, have I ever told you why God invented professions? And like, duh. Said, well, so that everyone can work on things he knows something about. Yep. And uh, it took me 20 years to realize what he told me. <laughs> One of my mentors told me it's not sufficient to be correct, which gets at that geek binaryitis, which is if things are going well and you don't like it, 
but everything is going well, maybe you should just let people be happy in their slight suboptimality. Rupa, did you have any people that either in your technology career or in networking were mentors and, you know, any great behaviors that we could learn from? Not direct mentors, but I think um, I've learned a lot from a lot of people in leadership, right? Uh, Leadership positions. And I think it also depends on the project you join. Like Ivan mentioned, you know, you love to do something. And then if the person who's leading it kind of encourages you to do more, I think that always helps. I think also being around people who uh, are highly motivated and highly uh, driven and Mm -hmm. always give you the bigger picture. I think that has helped a lot. And that is one thing that I have taken away as well now that I mentor juniors. It's like talking to your kids, right? You can dumb things down and tell them or take that extra few minutes. And, you know, it might not click today, but, you know, eventually, like 20 years later. So I think that helps. And I think that has been very valuable to me. And I think I pass it down to when I mentor. I keep that in mind. Cool. Elisa, what about you when you were getting into it? I'm on the same page as Ivan. I think it all kind of came down to someone gave you a chance at some point. That was my first internship at Amzix back in the day. Uh-huh. I had no idea. I did not have the qualifications to do any of the stuff that they tasked me to do, but they kind of gave me a chance and a project and paid me very little money and said, see what you can do here, right? And someone just giving you that opportunity to kind of get into things, whatever it is. And I kind of want to circle back onto the topic of like, if it's intimidating or not, because I think every single specialty that there is, be it security or networking or sysadmining or whatever, they all seem intimidating to me. You really want to go into the nitty gritty details of it. And I don't want to, you know, talk to someone about MySQL database and if my table should have this type or that type. No, if you really dive into the origins of databases, that's a huge topic. And it's probably about as huge as networking, if not even bigger to some extent. It's bigger. Right, exactly. So I don't really get why we put networking on a more intimidating stool than other stuff, because I think every single one of them is about the same intimidating. And the only thing you need is that willpower to get out the books and, you know, actually get down to the very, very bottom to learn what you want to do there. So there's intimidating and then there's obfuscated, right? Because, you know, I like to tell stories about how confused I was because it helps people understand that everyone, I mean, that's the process of learning is getting confused and unconfusing yourself. And that's really what we look for. I'm jumping ahead, but from junior people is I look at people, evidence that people like that loop. It's a loop. It's, okay, I'm going to throw myself in. I don't understand anything. When I got a book on basic, you know, I would, you know, I I did some and then I would read magazines that used to have printouts of programs and I didn't understand anything. And I would type it in and I would get confused and, you know, unconfused. But networking can still be unusually confusing. Like when I started, I was like, how does this BGP thing work? There was nowhere for me to go to do that. I'm like, do we show up? Like, does everyone peer with everybody? And you know, you read the RFC, it's it's not that helpful. And what's a CIDR prefix? Why don't you just say IP space? I'm a sysadmin. I know what IP addresses are. And then each vendor can use their own, you know, jargon. And so, you know, I wonder if some of it is, you know, well, Yvonne's been at it, you know, with education. And I've, I've tried to do that some too. 
that's something that's Do like make changed it? maybe ever since, you know, back when yeah. we were starting this, there was not as much education available or documentation available. There was none. Yeah, there was none. Like there is now. I mean, now someone can consciously choose to, I want to learn something about BGP and find all the classes and courses online. They need to actually learn it. No, but Avi, honestly, if you say networking complexity is something like BGP, it's like comparing different database engines in MySQL. <laughs> oh, yeah. Luca, Dara, and I caught up yesterday, and we talked about databases for, well, because if you get telemetry, then you need to do something with it. And yes, you can infinitely nerd about, you know, time series databases, and I mean, you know, you could spend a lot of time on all that. But, you know, and I try to explain to people that networking is a whole bunch of really simple things that interact in really complex ways convolved with vendor bugs. And no offense to anyone that's that's worked at, you know, a vendor. You just describe databases and compilers. Yeah, exactly. But how many times, and maybe Rupa can raise her hand, how many times have you found in your career a kernel bug? Not with like early, early Linux, right? You know, I think maybe I found a couple kernel bugs. Any professional networker that's using, you know, and again, not to pick on Cumulus or Cisco or you know, anybody, but networking people find bugs at a much higher rate than you find them in compilers, databases, and operating systems. So, Yeah, for two reasons. A, we're willing to buy crap, to paraphrase Greg Farrow. <laughs> and B, the user base is much smaller. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, yeah. How many people are effectively using networking? You know, you would be a network engineer and you would, in double quotes, own a hundred devices. Mm -hmm. There are 5,000 servers connected to your hundred devices and each server is running maybe 20 instances of Linux. So which software is better tested, you think? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So we've talked about how in our careers, in some sense, we got opportunity and we sort of grabbed it. And, you know, we had obviously the access and ability to do that. Yvonne, you talked about RFCs, which are full of must and will and shall. It's very biblical. Should. <laughs> Should, yeah. But when we're hiring, you know, we try to tune our job descriptions so that people that maybe aren't as, don't feel as included and enabled or think, you know, or work differently, you know, especially, for example, around listing all the extra skills that you would like, right? That will turn some people off. So what's the right balance between letting people know there are those opportunities versus finding the young people that are trying to grab them who you know will, you know, go far in their career? I don't know, Rupa, if you have any thoughts about that. Like, what's that balance? Yeah, sure. So well, one thing, networking has so many acronyms and those acronyms <laughs> come into intimidating or obfuscation. Yes. I think that we could reduce some acronyms. I mean, if you look for a job requirement that has, I don't know, PVST and, for example, uh -huh. STP is scary, right? Yeah, I deal with STP and I do not have the intentions of reading all variants of STP, right? I think what has helped at least me is um, even recruiting young kids from college who are more system savvy, it's easier to put uh, or propose networking as a systems problem, right? Systems problem and go from there. Even training, I mean, when you you know a person, whether they're aligned to systems, then you have a greater chance of converting them to a networking person, right? 
than you know somebody who's not interested in systems at all and then there is no point teaching them networking that's how i see it and that's what has helped me and of course open source i can talk about at length i mean open okay. source is at least it has helped me uh, like we talked about mentorship as well right i think um, some of the people who have helped me grow as a networking or systems person is uh, some unknown person on the open source community who you're you know who are driven by who motivates you so i think networking has not had at least the networking infrastructure side right not has a lot of open source code for example when you look at the same pvst code which is open source it might be look more easier than uh, cisco cli or any other cli you know talk throwing three uh, three word acronyms at you so i think uh, the whole open uh, source which has helped uh, the server side or linux side or system side i think that coming into networking and uh, encouraging younger people to show that they can learn from existing open source project and they don't have to you know looking at something or existing open out there actually helps younger generation see the i mean at least exposes people early i think that helps and elisa i've heard anna at packet fabric talk about you know the internet as the largest scale distributed systems i steal that with reference and talk about that too i mean especially emergent behaviors of bgp and all that stuff but you know in terms of hey this is fascinating it's a, just another kind of distributed system which all the exactly. other distributed systems you know depend on exactly evpn another four letter acronym it sounds more well, scary than you know hillary gorman a brilliant woman who worked at my isp and now she's a vet so she used to say debugging the net and deworming your pet <laughs> what she was doing both <laughs> together she got bored with all the acronyms and she's like ospf octopus suction cup protection factor <laughs> BGP, being good Philadelphians, you know, she had to, we didn't try PVST, so I don't have a Hillaryism for that. Yeah, I mean, Elisa, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how to get people in and make it seem interesting to people that did not take apart their televisions when they were growing up. Okay, here's a thought. We were briefly talking about this in the very beginning, that it used to be like one big soup of things that belong together, and it turned into those very detailed specialties now right primordial nerd versus specialty yeah. yeah and now we have the security nerds and the networking nerds and the software and the front end and the back end and the whatever and people get into those narrower focuses for some reason versus i think that the opposite is kind of more beneficial to some extent so what anna was saying is you know you need those people that span different disciplines the most in a lot of different projects to, you know, even be it mediate between the really hardcore network nerds and the software nerds to build anything similar like we do at Packet Fabric, where we're trying to, you know, make uh, software around the networking thing. We need the software engineers and we need the network engineers and best some people in the middle that understand both to kind of bridge that gap. And I think maybe that's a point for younger people to kind of, you know, motivate with maybe. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. So like, you know, be someone who knows multiple disciplines because that gives you some kind of greater chance in various projects. Yeah, I think that definitely helps. And Rupa, I mean, one of the things that we look for on the software engineering side is, well, you know, GitHub <laughs> contribution, you yeah. know. Did someone do something on their own? You know, did they work as a team, especially 
right? So I often tell people who are, you know, junior in career, demonstrate that you have passion about something, you know, that you've worked with a team and that could be coming in and clearing, you know, tickets or, or participating and make it public, whether it's blogging the things that were confusing to you or, you know, and then you've created something that sets you apart. In networking world, that can be a little bit harder to jump into, you know, a whole thing, but it could be a lab or provisioning and, you know, blogging. And that can also be, you know, a good way to get, I'll say, get discovered. That sounds like a different industry, like actresses and actors. But I guess one related question, as you look at people, do you have a preference? As you look at people earlier in career, do you have a preference as to whether they've had a higher ed, you know, college, university degree? Or, you know, how much do you think that matters? No. Um, <laughs> also, just jump right in. I mean, I actually technically don't have a degree. I have everything but one class for an undergraduate degree. Very similar situation. <laughs> and I think yeah. more than half of the people I work with are in very similar situations because we just kind of got grabbed out of university and started our first jobs right away. And never Yeah, you smelled the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit. <laughs> You get to make your own bullshit. You get to make your own things when you do it. Because in class, you have to take the professor's bullshit. Exactly. (laughs) And you also, I don't know, I never liked university for everything being so theoretical. And I like to do some practice. Like if I actually feel like a customer is being impacted by me doing this now, it, you know, has a much higher impact on me focusing on this versus, you know, I'm just going to make my teacher unhappy with it. So yeah, whatever. (laughs) Now, the only reason I'm still telling everyone that they should go to university and finish it is to A, prove to everyone that you are able to finish something that you started, honestly. (laughs) Set a goal, reach the goal. Yeah. It was your goal, it wasn't mine. And second, at university, they force you to deal with stuff that you would never touch on your own. And you never know when you will need that stuff uh, 20 years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And 20 years down the road, you would not touch that stuff. And, you know, without being exposed to it once, you would stay in your niche or you would stay the perfect expert beginner. Yeah. Rupa, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree. I don't look for a higher degree. Of course, an undergraduate degree is in a certain field is good. But I've seen that. Again, going back to the open source uh, stuff that you uh, mentioned as well is instead of going for a higher degree, we have seen a lot of success with people who spend a lot more time hacking on open source projects, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in the Linux networking community, there are a lot of young people who get in and it's merit-based. And sometimes organizational boundaries kind of isolate you or don't encourage you to move to do higher things or greater things. But I think open source, engaging in open source, have your code out. I think that has helped more people than, you know, a higher degree in this space. You do realize that we are talking about top 5%, right? Well, I think that's one of the challenges is, so I went to Temple University, which is a computer school. And I had been using computers since I was eight. And I had done stuff with my uncle and, you know, written large C programs and worked so I came in, again, advantage, but a lot of the students that were in my classes had two jobs, right? Because there was a state school, was, I don't know, $2,000 a semester. Again, I was fortunate. I lived at home. My parents paid for tuition. And, you know, there was a real balance because for the professors, 
how much work to give, you know, because this is going to help them later in career in the 80s and 90s. The two things I used to look for for people that had degrees is ask them about their compiler and their operating system class, because those are the things which you're going to do, which are typically beyond what one person could write all of, you know, and, you know, involve project work. But I'll say wonder and worry about that because the easiest discriminator is, okay, they've blogged about a whole bunch of things so I can see their progression. Or even like, I really am impressed with Julia Evans, who does the zines. Oh, yeah, she's wonderful. But there's only one of her. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's like we have imposter syndrome, but that's what I did with the BGP stuff. It's like when someone's learning the things which are confusing, which shouldn't be. For me, it was eBGP versus IBGP. Why do you become May clueless? It's like, oh, they forgot to put loop detection into IBGP. That's why you have ret reflectors and, and confederations. And it's like those insights are some of the things that can help the most. And it's going to be the novices you know, that have them. But then you have to have time. Ivan, as you said, that's the 5%. And that's, you know, what we look for. It's the open source contributions, it's blogging. But question for everyone is, what can we do to find the people that have potential, but might not have had the opportunity? I've got one more. So I remember at, in university, and I never had a computer, because you, you, you keep saying like, you know, you had a computer ever since you were eight, and you were doing I was fortunate, yes. And that already, exactly. So I never did. I bought, I literally bought my first computer two weeks before starting computer science at the university. And I was like, okay, this is cool. Let's do this. <laughs> but I always felt like, because obviously a lot of geeks go for computer science, and they've already played with like computers at home before when they were kids. So maybe you know, getting them in even younger as we're, because we're talking about taking juniors from university and talking about hiring them. Maybe it's a thing that should start in childhood in like tinkering at home and doing some, you know, kids programming. I don't know. Minecraft is the big thing right now. And I hear it has something, you know, it has some kind of educational component to it already that kind of makes kids more comfortable with the entire space than it used to, because I always felt at a disadvantage, I think, at university with everyone already knowing all this stuff. Did you? That's amazing, because when I attended, uh, you know, computer science, engineering, whatever, there were maybe like 10% of us in the first year that actually had some prior experience. Everyone else was there because, ooh, this is interesting. This is new. We have to be there. I don't want to point this out now, but we're talking about another, like, you know, 10, 15 year difference here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're talking to a great beard. People I was teaching a few years back, I wouldn't say that majority of them were, you know, programming since they were three years old. Okay. You were probably just looking at, you know, the overachievers and comparing yourself to them and feeling bad and ignoring the 90% of everyone else who was feeling exactly a cure. Surround yourself with the people you aspire to. Maybe that was my problem. <laughs> well, that's not a problem. That's a good strategy. <laughs> I think of it as two sides of the same coin. I think I look for people with bright, shiny eyes and that are passionate and interested. And then it doesn't really matter. Actually, a 2x factor in how fast you learn doesn't matter over a 20-year period, you know, in terms of growth, because there's only so much you know, to learn at some point. And especially if you can then mentor others, then you become multiplicatively, you know, effective for an org. And so I think about it on both sides of that, which is how do we identify those people and how do we encourage those people, right? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't 
only enable the privileged, you know, to identify. Aliza, you talked about college outreach. We're we're going to be doing that both, you know, sort of to offer to do lectures about things that can be confusing, like the business side of peering in economics, right? right. And uh, which is another whole set of things which can be hard to understand, you know, from a distance. And then, you know, more towards the later stage with data and projects and things. And I don't know for your companies, Rupa, I don't know. Have you had success with college university outreach? Have you had the opportunity to be able to, you know, sort of think long term and what's worked that you've seen? Yes, definitely. We do a lot of outreach, college outreach. When I was at a startup, I think we've mostly done on the East Coast. Well, I don't think they go there. But yeah, having college grads, again, it's been a hit or a miss. I have mentored a lot, many. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, systems interest, you know, definitely networking. You introduce them to networking and it just takes off. They Mm -hmm. get hooked to it. And sometimes it's a mess. You know, people find something else to do, like autonomous cars these days, which is... uh, (laughs) Facebook. (laughs) especially in the (laughs) Bay Area. It's highly competitive. Yeah, we were always using the college outreach to probably hire like 80% of our engineers through that channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, you have to first somehow motivate them to approach you. For us, we were a Cisco training partner, so it was easy. We offered free CCNA courses. Mm Mm-hmm. So you immediately get interest from people who want to achieve something and are slightly interested in networking. And we would get like 100 applications for 14 seats. And that was the first selection process. And then the instructor who had them for a week would at the end recommend maybe three or four of them. And we would offer them to work with us. And then we would put them in a team where they would do some network-related software development. We were running network management as a service in those days. So they would be working on what's that open source thing you called that everyone was using before Grafana. It was not Observian, uh, MRTG. After MRTG. Cacti. Yes, that one. (laughs) So they would work on extending that and did some crazy stuff. For example, one of them realized that you could detect people doing BitStore and just by looking at the size of the net translation table. Uh-huh. And after a year or two spent there, we would, you know, then run them through internal trainings, which were given by the senior engineers to, you know, tell them about IP routing and wireless and when and all that stuff, and then give them a project to work on. And in the end, they had to present the project. So there were also presentation skills involved. And that worked beautifully. But yeah, it's a long process. You need like two to three years to grow an engineer from scratch. And obviously, this is not anything that anyone these days is looking for. They would love to have someone who has 20 years of PVSD experience. (laughs) 20 years of Go experience, right? 40 years of Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah. 25 years of EVPN experience. So I think, and I know we're, we're hitting the top of the time. I think that would be part of my encouragement to people is demonstrate you're interested, whether it's blogging about things that you found confusing, which can help other people break in and understand, showing your passion, contributing to open source, and understand that there's going to be some supportive people and maybe some less, but the community is trying to do better. 
at that. And I think it'll also be an ongoing topic for us all is how do we help get people in? And uh, as Rupa and Elisa, as you talked about, and, uh, you know, Anna has talked about, you know, helping market networking as the largest distributed systems and maybe get people with your, like with your background, Rupa, and, you know, the systems people in. But there has to be a balance. They have to have that passion and not. And so I'll, as we bring this to a close, I guess one question, any career advice you'd give your younger self, since we're talking about people earlier in career, and mine would be do even more education, you know, again, do that sort of, whether it's Twitter, blogging, the things that you think are confusing that people will think you're stupid for. Again, look at what Julia Evans has done and look at what a lot of people do. It's so valuable to everybody else to help people. Elisa, any advice for early Elisa? Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit bad about us saying no to higher education because I do agree with Ivan that it is, <laughs> some, it is something that I do up until this day. I do regret that I never handed in the thesis. So actually, it feels unfinished, right? So I, I definitely I would advise people to do that and go grab yourself that internship and, you know, fight for it and try to get in. And even if it's badly paid at the beginning, it will turn around real quick. So Rupa? Yeah. Internship, and I think networking needs more of these projects like Google Summer of Code and yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah, to get more people interested. So, but there are many communities that are doing that. There is kernel projects as well, kernel networking projects. So, I would encourage younger generation to actually go look for networking projects in these communities to work on. Not all hackathon has some great yeah, supportive people. Exactly. Or just build your own. I mean, there were people in Slovenia who built their own wireless mesh. Yeah. They were sick and tired of, you know, the local telco having uh, near monopoly and they solved the problem. Ivan, any advice, career advice for young Ivan? Well, as always, focus on fundamentals. Try to understand why things are the way they are. For example, why the heck is the route reflection in IBGP? Yeah. And the other thing that really worked well for me once someone pushed me through that is try to teach others. Because when you try to explain something, you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I think Einstein had a quote like that too, which is you don't truly master something until you've taught it. Thanks everybody for joining for the conversation. I think it's going to be an ongoing thing, but... Uh... For anyone listening, we would encourage, we're excited by young people coming in. Demonstrate your passion, and uh, I'm confident you'll find people that will, will work with you. I don't know, Yvonne, how you wrap these things up, but I guess contact info, avi at avi.net, avi at avi.net, and Avi Friedman on Twitter and other places. Rupa, how can people find you? Rupa.prabhu at gmail.com, and okay. I'm underscore underscore Rupa on Twitter. I just lurk around oh. so. <laughs> Okay. Elisa? Same here. I don't really Twitter, but Elisa at bigwaveit.org. And you want think people know how to find you. Yeah, and you can find me on ipspace.net or on Twitter as at iOS Hints, and my account hasn't been blocked yet. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an aspiration for this year? Okay, we'll, we'll stop here. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.